bear with me. Welcome again to Crosspoint. We're just so glad that you're here with us. Um, like Pastor Joel said, we're going to continue our series through First Peter today with chapter two, and we're going to start. Um, we're going to do the first half of chapter two this week. Um, I'd like to read the verses, and then we will pray and get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time that we have to uh, gather today. I pray that you would be with me as I bring the sermon, that um, you would help me to share what I have learned, um, what you have taught me, and I pray that you would just not allow any of us to leave the same when, as we came in today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, put away all wickedness, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow, if it is true that you have experienced that the Lord is good. Coming to him as to a living stone who is rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house as a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For also it is contained in the scripture, Look, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him shall never be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word, to which also they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may declare the goodness of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In times past, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we continue to study through the book of First Peter, um, as you know, we're, we're calling this series A Living Hope. And I'd like to kind of give us a little bit of some background, if maybe you hadn't been with us the last couple of weeks as we went through um, chapter one. Paul is writing to the scattered church across what is now modern day northern Turkey, and he refers to them as strangers or refugees. Now, this is an intentional term that he has chosen to use, and it's not by accident. And we're not going to discuss that today, but next or a week from uh, next Sunday, uh, we will continue our uh, preaching through chapter two, and we will be able to dive deeply into what that word means. This book is written as a message of hope, encouragement, and instruction to these believers. In chapter one, verse six, he seems to imply that they've been going through some difficult times, some tribulations, even some persecution. He's encouraging them that the, circum the circumstances that they're going through, and even the future hardships that are awaiting them are nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits them because of the living hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Now, in studying this book and really in studying any of the New Testament epistles, we see kind of a break in how they are written. There's two portions. Usually there's the, the what I like to call the what, and then there's the how. Now, some of them kind of interweave between these two dynamics, but in 1 Peter, it's really very linear. linear. And so chapter one is really, really was the what of the book. Firstly, it was a declaration of joy in the fact that we have a living hope, that we are indeed in Christ Jesus because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That was in verses three through 12. 
And then because of that truth, we are given not only this hope, but we are also given a purpose. We are called to lead a holy life that is rooted and built up in this salvation. As Romans 12.1 says, it's our reasonable or our necessary service of worship. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1 stated a little more pointedly. It says, but as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, the wonderful thing about this demand is that Jesus already knows it's impossible for us to live this way. Unless he was indwelling us, the fact that he sent his son to die for us proves that he loved us enough that he wants us to be able to live this way. We were hopeless and dead in our sins, and now we are alive and redeemed. Now, with the Spirit guiding us, we are then given to the strength, given the strength and the power that is necessary to be holy. Chapters 2 through 5 really give us the details of how we are to live and to be holy. It really sets the foundation. So we'll begin going through verse by verse now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, now therefore is kind of a fun word because in the English language, the therefore is there for a reason. It's there because it's bridging the gap from one thought into the next thought. So because of everything, so therefore, or because of everything that is said in chapter one, the living hope that we have, um, the fact that we are called to live a holy life, therefore put away all wickedness, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Now, Peter here is referring specifically by name to the former lusts from chapter one, verse 14. The, the ones that we were ignorantly under the influence of before we came under the grace of God. We couldn't recognize the sin with our own eyes blinded to the truth. But now that we've been set free by the gospel, we are commanded to put away these unholy behaviors. Paul uses similar terminology when addressing the Ephesians about holy living. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 describes the difference between the old life without Christ and the new life found in Christ. Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord that from now on you walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened, excluded from the life of God through the ignorance that is within them due to the hardness of their hearts. Being calloused, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn about Christ in this manner. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off the former way of life in the old nature, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new nature, which was created according to God, in righteousness and true holiness. Now this new nature has been given to us by God. He has indwelled us with his spirit, and we are now part of his family. These attitudes and these actions that he is describing here are no longer a part of the nature of us as we are children of God. Our vocabulary should be different. Dishonesty should not come so easily. Saying one thing and doing the opposite and then holding someone to a higher standard than you even hold yourself should not be a part of your character anymore. Sinfully wishing for the things that someone else has instead of being thankful to God for the things that he has blessed you with should be far from your imagination. Any form of speech that belittles or intimidates or is in any way demeaning to anyone who is made in the image of Christ should be shunned. We are to be different. We are to be holy as God our Father is holy. But not only are we to be holy, 
and we are to put away these old desires, we are to be filled with new desires. Verses 2 and 3, as newborn babies desire the pure or the sincere, the, the true milk of the word, that by it you may grow, if it is true that you have experienced that the Lord is good. Now, Peter is not at all saying that he considers these believers to be babies or immature in their faith. He also is not questioning if they are, in fact, true believers. Rather, he is using this as a practical example that those who are indeed in the faith will be constantly desiring to know more of God and his will for their life. There will be constant growth and change in the life of a believer because the word of God is what's showing them the things in their life that is no longer compatible with holy living. Since we believe that the word of the Lord endures forever, like Pastor Joel ended his sermon on last week, we know that this passage is not only profitable to the original audience, but it's also applicable to our own lives. It's hard for any believer to continue to mature in their faith and in their personal holiness if they are not seeking after the word of God. Now, there is a big difference between wants and desires. A want may be anything that piques your interest and causes you to indulge in it if it is immediate or convenient. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has gotten in line to go to a restaurant because I'm hungry. And then you just like sit there for a few minutes and you realize it's not moving very fast. There's plenty of other choices. I'm going to go ahead and I wanted this, but it's not worth it. But then there's other times where like there's only one thing that will satisfy and so when I get in that line, it doesn't matter how many cars, it doesn't matter how long I have to wait, like, that's what I'm going to eat. You know, it doesn't matter how late I get home, how late I'm eating, that is what I want. Now, that's the way that a Christian is, should feel about the Word of God. They won't be able to get enough of it, and nothing else will fill. We won't be able to do what God has called us to do if we are not living in His Word we need our own personal time to meet with God and read his word. We need our local church. We need good biblical music that can fill our minds and our hearts to praise our God. Now, without the resurrection, I'm sorry. Now, praise the Lord, though, even though we are called to holiness, God is aware that perfection is not attainable for us in our current state. That's why the resurrection is so important. Without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we would never be able to have the ability to be holy. Because on our own, we are not able to be holy. Without Jesus being the glue to hold us together and to intercede before God for us, we would not be able to live in a manner pleasing to God. Verses 4 and 5. Coming to him as to a living stone who is rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus here is referred to as a living stone, continuing to, re to reiterate what separates believers in Jesus from those who have other belief systems that our God is alive. We have a living hope. I want to read what Matthew Henry's commentary has to say about these verses because I think he puts it really well, um, probably better than I could have written. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'd like to read this for us this morning. In this metaphorical description of Jesus Christ, he is called a stone to denote his invincible strength and everlasting duration. 
and to teach his servants that he is their protection and security, the foundation on which they are built in a rock of offense to all his enemies. He is the living stone, having eternal life in himself, and being the prince of life to all his people. The reputation and respect he has with God and man are very different. He is disallowed of men, reprobated or rejected by his own countrymen, the Jews, and by the generality of mankind, but, the, but chosen of God, separated and foreordained to be the foundation of the church, as referenced in chapter 1, verse 20. He's precious, a most honorable choice, worthy person in himself, in the esteem of God, and in the judgment of all who believe on him. To this person so described, we are obliged to come. To whom coming, not by a local motion, or in other words, not in our own power or our own will. For that is impossible since his exaltation or his holiness. But by faith, whereby we are united to him at first, and draw nigh to him afterwards. Learn, Jesus Christ is the very foundation stone of all our hopes and happiness. He communicates the true knowledge of God, Matthew eleven twenty seven. By him we have access to the Father, John 14, 6. And through him we are made partakers of all spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Men in general disallow and reject Jesus Christ. They slight him, dislike him, oppose him, and refuse him. However, Christ may be disallowed by an ungrateful world, yet he is chosen of God and precious in his account. He is chosen and fixed upon to be the Lord of the universe, the head of the church, the savior of his people, and the judge of the world. He is precious in the excellency of his nature, the dignity of his office, and the gloriousness of his services. Those who expect mercy from this gracious Redeemer must come to him, which is our act, though done by God's grace, an act of the soul, not of the body, a real endeavor, not a fruitless wish. Because of Jesus, this living stone, we are made to be living stones as well. And we are being used to build a spiritual house. We are called to be a holy priesthood. Now, one of the distinctives that we as a church hold dear is actually found here in this passage, the priesthood of the believer. Now, if you've read anything in the Old Testament, you've probably heard of this group of people called the Levites. And now they were a tribe of Israel that God had set aside to take care of the holy things of, the, of, of God. And they had started off with responsibilities of carrying the Ark of the Covenant and setting up and taking down the tabernacle as the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness. They're also part of their responsibilities was offering sacrifices on behalf of the people for God because they were required to live at such a holy standard that they could come to God on behalf of the people. But once Jesus died and the veil in the temple was torn, there was no longer a need for the priest to go to God on behalf of his people. And those who believe on Jesus today as Lord are given the same access to God as those Levites in the Old Testament. In fact, we are given even the ability to offer spiritual offerings unto God for ourselves. But not only are we able to individually come to the Father, we're part of a larger, more beautiful building that God has been building for himself ever since those first trusted in him. Just like the metaphor of the body in Ephesians 4, we are all being made into something more than we could have ever imagined because of Jesus Christ. Peter then refers to the Old Testament and quotes almost verbatim some prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. 1 Peter 2, verse 6, For also it is contained in the scriptures, 
Look, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him shall never be put to shame. Now, this is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, a prophecy of how God would totally disrupt the world by sending Jesus to build the kingdom of God on earth. I love this second half of this verse. He who believes in him will never be put to shame. No one enjoys the feeling of shame. Now, there's nothing worse than speaking on behalf of someone or doing something for someone and then they don't come through on the deal that you said that they would do. Um, I know several times, you know, I have this new job where I am in charge of a kitchen and I am in charge of making sure that people have food. But then the truck doesn't show up on time. And then these people don't get what they want to order. And I'm like, it's not my fault, but I feel really bad because I want you to have what you want, but I, there's nothing I can do about it. Jesus will never do that for us. He will always come through on his promises. It's funny, we've been studying um, Elijah in teen small group the last couple of weeks. And there's actually it's some perfect examples of Jesus coming through, God coming through for his people. Now, Elijah was sent to Ahab and he was told to let them know that there was going to be a famine, there was going to be a drought, and until the Lord sent rain, there would be no rain. And then he was sent by the Lord to live by a brook and eat by the, the wings of ravens who would bring him bread from who knows where. And he lived there until the brook dried up and the ravens stopped coming. And so God sent him to go be with a widow in the middle of nowhere. And this widow and her son were about to eat their last meal. And Elijah walks up and says, will you feed me? And she's like, well, we were just about to eat the last thing we have and drink the last thing we have. And we were just going to die because like, there's nothing else we can do. And Elijah says, well, God says that if you feed me, you will not run out of food and you won't run out of water until the end of this drought. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. And then this widow's son passes away unexpectedly later on. And she comes to him angry. And she's like, you're the man of God. Why am I sheltering you if bad is going to come upon me? And so Elijah, he goes and he prays over the boy and God brings him back to life. And then Elijah sees the opposite of this. So God's coming through for him. Well, then there's the story I'm sure most of you are familiar with, the, the prophets of Baal and the, and the, the, the sacrifices that they were called to have a um, oh, confrontation over. And Elijah is the only prophet and there's 450 plus 400. So 850 prophets of Baal and they're just calling on their God. Who's the first one that's going to send fire? That's going to be the true God. And so Elijah not only gets to see God come through for him and for the people of Israel, but he also gets to see what it's like for someone to call on a God that doesn't exist that doesn't hear. Verses 7 and 8 continue this thought. First, First Peter 2, 7 and 8. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed. Now, verse 7, Peter is quoting 
Psalm 118. The psalmist's words are prophetic that God was going to use Israel in his redemptive plan for the world. And the New Testament authors, they're using this passage to show that Jesus has indeed fulfilled these prophecies. In verse 8, Peter once again quotes from Isaiah, this time from chapter 8 and verse 14. Isaiah says that Jesus would become a stone of stumbling to Israel and to Jerusalem. It seems that Peter is using this passage and the word builders, the ones who have rejected the chief cornerstone, uh, to mean the Pharisees, the, the, the religious leaders at the time that Jesus came and the ones who put him to death and rejected him. Now, Jesus came to bring about the kingdom of God, but these people were too busy focusing on the foundations that they had built for themselves through religious focus. And Jesus was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to these religious leaders. It seems that the picture that Peter is trying to paint is that there's this path full of rocks, sharp rocks. These people are just walking along, stumbling, falling, cutting themselves, getting angry, cursing the rocks, but continually getting back up and continuing on their own way. When in reality, God is waiting to carry them through that valley, those rocks, because that dis, those disobedient ways, God is the rocks that is trying to turn them to himself. Matthew Henry's commentary puts it well. Once again, he says, the same blessed Jesus who is the author of salvation to some is to others the occasion of their sin and destruction. He is set for the rising and falling of many in Israel, quoting Simeon in Luke 2.34. He is not the author of their sin, but only the occasion of it. Their own disobedience makes them stumble at him and reject him, which he punishes as a judge with destruction. Now, this destruction that they faced, that we faced before we came to know Jesus, was one of their own our, or our own choosing. If, if they would have just turned from their own devices, they would have come to love and adore the Savior for the kindness that he has extended. And Peter does not want us to forget our own history, that as if we were any better than those who are stumbling at the holiness and just ways of God. Verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may declare the goodness of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In times past you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All people fall into two categories. Either you are as the Pharisees or you are a believer. We are either engrossed with the immediate gratification of the tangible or we are enamored with the beauty of the eternal Savior. Verse 9 tells us that all those who are in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are to proclaim to those who still dwell in darkness that there is a marvelous light, a Savior who has shown his truth on our hearts and has written his name on our hearts. Like 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. Now, I know that this is getting a little ahead, but I have to do this because it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, Peter is discussing the day of the Lord. Now, there's a bunch of people he's addressing. It seems that they are having a hard time 
with the fact that God has not come back yet. There's so much bad going on. Like, how long, Lord, are you going to allow wicked men to prosper? How much more are you going to allow um, us to suffer through? Now, Peter fills them in on the truth that we as humans cannot grasp the scope of eternity. We see things through a finite lens, but God is a big picture kind of God. He says that a thousand years are as a day to him. So he's not slow in keeping his promise to his children. Rather, it is in his great love that he is actually being patient and long-suffering, not yet releasing his righteous indignation upon those who have rejected him. Peter says in verse 9 that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We have obtained mercy, yet at one time we were at the mercy of a just and wrathful God. We were the children of disobedience, yet now we are heirs of God. So as we conclude today, I'd like to leave us with a couple of thoughts. First, let us put away the sins of our old nature and seek after the pure milk of God's word. We cannot choose either or if we're truly wanting to live holy as our Father also is holy. Also, let us come to Jesus, the living stone, who is the chief cornerstone and allow our life to be shaped by the foundation that he has laid. If he is our cornerstone, then we are a holy priesthood. We will never be ashamed at the promises of God. If you have been going about in your life and maybe you feel as if you are tripping over yourself and your life's choices, that's God reaching out to you in mercy. Maybe you're here or someone listening online. You know that Jesus is the answer. You know that he's the one that you need to surrender your life to, but you just have no interest in it. He's not willing that you should perish. He wants you to repent. I pray that you would see the goodness of God and that it would capture you with his beauty. And lastly, if you are a believer today, remember in times past, you were not his child, but now you are a child of God. You were without mercy, but now you have received that mercy. Let's pray.